Take your Bibles with me tonight, if you would, and let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Pastor sent me an email today, and he was in a crisis. He said, Clarissa's home does not, he doesn't get a cell phone reception in her house, and she doesn't have long-distance service on her landline, so he was, he was powerless to call today, so he sent me an email instead. So you pray for him as he is in a dead zone, and... Uh, <laughs> Pray that he can escape the dead zone alive. I get tonight to do one of the things I like to do the least. I, I, love, I love all the work I, I do here. I love to teach the teenagers and work in the, in the school, and I love all the work that I do. I, I've never been comfortable, though, standing behind this pulpit. I, I don't mind teaching from on the floor behind the, the podium so much, but uh, realizing the gravity of what is done behind this pulpit always humbles me and makes me a little nervous. But tonight I want to speak to you and deliver you a message entitled, The Analogy of a Believer. Now maybe you looked on the website and saw the anatomy of a believer, and I was going to, I was actually going to teach tonight on the anatomy of a believer, but the Lord changed my mind, and I decided to preach this message tonight entitled, The Analogy of a Believer. Um... Let's all stand, if you would, as I read tonight from Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse number 1, and I'll read through verse number 5. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you and praise you for your great mercy and grace. We stand before you tonight, Lord, humbled that the great creator of all things cares about us. And Lord, we thank you for calling and choosing us and saving us. And now we ask that you would instruct us. Holy Spirit of God, we yield ourselves unto you tonight and ask that you would instruct us, enlighten us, and give us wisdom and knowledge that we might live our lives as the Lord intends us to do so. Thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin tonight with a question posed in Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 3, in verses 11 and 12, we read, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And we begin with this question, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Now this is an important question. It's very important for us to learn what type of people we should be. For you see, we have to remember that In time past, before we were saved, we were as all men are. 
unrepentant sinners. And as such, we conducted our lives as unrepentant sinners do. Uh, this fly must really like me because every time I stand up here to preach, he comes out. Once again, as, as such, we, we conducted our lives as unrepentant sinners do. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, Wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So it's very important that we learn what manner of people we ought to be, because it's obvious that we cannot continue the way that we were. And although we know and we realize that we were unworthy of the grace of God, the great gift of His eternal salvation through the blood of Christ, though we know this, we still, as sinful flesh, if we are not careful, seek to satisfy our need for self-gratification by doing something very foolish. And that something is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, where Paul states, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So we're, we, we need to determine what manner of people we ought to be, but we have to be careful lest we begin to exalt ourselves in our, in our salvation, and we begin to compare ourselves amongst ourselves to determine whether or not we are good Christians. So many people foolishly look among the crowd and say, well, I'm better than that one over there, and I'm certainly better than brother so-and-so over here. So we feel like, well, I'm not so bad. But is that wise? Well, God says it's very unwise to do so. So tonight, I would like to put aside all of our human reasoning and comparisons and see what God states in His Word. See what God says we should do. See what the Word of God admonishes us concerning this matter of walking worthy of God. God has admonished us in Scripture as to how we are to conduct ourselves. He gives us an analogy of a believer, and I find that analogy here in Romans chapter 12. So first tonight, let me begin by saying this. A believer should be consecrated. A believer should be consecrated. Look with me again at Romans chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the word consecrated is defined 
by definition, means given entirely to a specific person, activity, or cause. So to be consecrated means to be completely given to something. Now, Paul begins this section of Scripture in Romans chapter 12 with a very strong admonition. He states right at the beginning, I beseech you. In other words, he's saying, I'm pleading with you, or I'm encouraging you. Here he, he, and then following, he selects some very key phrases, which I want to look at for just a moment. Key phrases that help us understand the gravity of this admonition. He starts out by saying, I beseech you, but then he adds, by the mercies of God. So Paul is admonishing us, and he's saying, by, by the mercies of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, we read, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. By the mercies of God. Why should you and I be consecrated? Well, certainly by God's, by the mercies of God, because of the great grace of God. In, in the verse we just read, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes here, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That literally means that as you sit here tonight, if you are an elect child of God, as you sit here tonight, that your sins are are not imputed against you. You are not held by God. You are not held accountable for your sins. That should be enough to make you say... It didn't say we've never sinned. It says they're not imputed to us. So if, they, if, they, if, if our sins are not imputed to us, but they must be paid for, then who were our sins imputed upon? Is that enough to make you say, do you understand that? Your sins were paid for. Every sin you ever committed, every sin you are committing, every sin you will commit was paid for, but not by you. But by Jesus Christ. Amen. Do we deserve that? Are we worthy of that? But yet we have it. By the mer- Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. A believer is aware, or at least should be aware, that he is nothing. And all that he has is by the grace of God. If you have a good home tonight, if you have a loving family tonight, if you you have reasonable prosperity tonight, it's by the grace of God. You say, no, you see, I have a good job because I went to college and I got a degree and I did all of this, and I did all of that. Yeah, you did all that, but it's still by the grace of God. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul states, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's but by the grace of God tonight that you you and I are not sitting in some gutter somewhere, dying and, and, and wasting our lives. It's by the grace of God that we have what we have and that we are what we are. Paul reminds us that it is by God's mercy that we are not consumed. You know, I've often wondered, why does God not just wipe out everybody? I mean, you know, if I were God, there'd be little spots all over the place. Because somebody would stand up and badmouth God, and I'd just go... If I was God, that would be it. You know, you'd see little spots everywhere. Oh, there was another one. But it's by God's mercy that you and I are not consumed. You see, we, 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 uh, we like to brush off our jackets on our way to church and sing the hymns and feel good about ourselves as we sit in the pew. But you better remember tonight, it's by God's mercy that you and I are not consumed by the fires of God. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, we read, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God said, it's because of my promise and my my immutability that you are not consumed. It's not because you do anything to, to merit or warrant anything you have. It's by my mercy and by my grace that you have and are what you are. So first, Paul admonishes us to be consecrated. First of all, he says, by the mercies of God. But then I want you to notice, he nextly says, present your bodies. He calls unto us to present our bodies. But I submit to you tonight that it's not ours to give. It's his to claim. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 19 and 20, Paul writes, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul reminded the Corinthians that they do not own their life. It has been bought. A price has been paid for that life. And may I submit to you tonight that a price has been paid for your life as well. And that price was the blood of Christ on Calvary. So tonight, Christians, dare you and I now take that which belongs to Christ and continue in sin? Is that just? Is that equitable? If you go out and purchase something, does someone else have a right to come along and take that and do what they desire to do with it? Of course not. You have ownership. You own it. You paid for it. It's yours. Yet you and I, every day, take that which Christ has purchased and do with it as we choose regardless of what he says. Now let me ask you, do we have a choice? Do we have a right to do what we want to do 
in our bodies? Well, I submit to you that no, we don't. We do not have a choice because it's been purchased by God. It's his. You and I were dead and God made us alive so that we might live unto him. He didn't make us alive so that we might once again live unto sin and unto the flesh. He made us alive so that we would change and begin our lives for him. In fact, Paul says present our bodies, but in fact we shouldn't even look at it as though we are giving God our life because it's already his. He already owns it. He has given you life so that you would live for him. So Paul tells us, he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies. But his next phrase is this, that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul states, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, Paul had the philosophy that he would be better off dead. And by the way, all of us, in reality, would be happier and better off if we were dead, because if we were dead, we would be in the presence of the Lord. But God didn't save us so that we would die. He saved us so that we would live. But he saved us so that we would live for him. And that we would make it available for him to live through us. Paul said, it'd be a, uh, Paul said I'm, in, I'm in a straight betwixt two. Desiring to be with the Lord, which was far better, but needing to be here for your sake. In other words, Paul said, for the sake of the elect, it was needful that he abide here. And the same is true for you and I tonight. It's needful that we abide here for the sake of the elect. It's needful that we abide here for these children so we can teach them, so we can be examples for them. It's needful that we be here so that we can preach the gospel, so that the elect saints of God will be gathered unto the harvest. It's needful that we be here so we can stand and preach and proclaim the word of God and glorify and honor God in in our words and in our deeds. It's needful that we be here. However, our abiding here should be in the fullness of the spirit and not in the sinfulness of the flesh. Oh, God left us alive. He did, so that we would live through him, in him, and he would live through us. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're to be a living sacrifice. We're to understand that God took our dead selves, and he made us alive. He quickened us so that we would live for him, so that he would live through us. Paul said, I beseech you by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. But then next he says, acceptable unto God. 
In Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 41, we read the words, I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein ye have been scattered. And I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. Now, this here in Ezekiel is referring to the life lived under the sacrifice of Christ. It is those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, we read, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Only a believer can present a life acceptable unto God. And this is because only the righteousness of Christ is acceptable unto God. And only God's elect saints possess the righteousness of Christ. Oh, as we sit here tonight, you and I have been clothed in righteousness. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself. And that alone makes us acceptable unto God. We're admonished by the mercies of God to present our bodies a living sacrifice acceptable unto God. And then Paul states, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. Now this phrase, reasonable service, summarizes and quantifies the previous statements. In other words, it is reasonable that we present our bodies and it is reasonable that we present them a living sacrifice and it is reasonable reasonable that we present them acceptable unto God. God never calls upon us to do anything that is unreasonable, even if He calls upon us to die. Now, fortunately, in our generation... They don't burn Christians at the stake anymore. However, they did at one time. And men and women, and I'm sure even children, were called upon to die a martyr's death for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, was that unreasonable? Well, perhaps in our finite human minds we would consider it unreasonable. But certainly, in in light of the entire spectrum of God's grace and mercy, no. It's not unreasonable. Even if we're called upon to die. Job knew this. For in Job chapter 13 and verse 15, Job stated, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job knew that even dying was not unreasonable. You know, in all the suffering Job endured, and by the way, he endured them with no no reason to endure them other than the challenge of Satan himself. In all of that, never do we hear Job accuse God of being unjust. Job did not consider his, his, his suffering unreasonable. In fact, he told his wife, God, God giveth, God taketh away. Uh, or the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job never considered it unreasonable to suffer for Christ. So this 
this unreason this reasonable service of Paul is designed to go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and verse 1 and quantify all of that said he said so far but then it also leaps forward into the following statement in verse 2 it prefaces that statement to be transformed he wrote by the renewing of your mind and this denotes our personal worship our attitude toward God and his kingdom it seems perfectly reasonable that a regenerate man will change the way he thinks and reasons. Wouldn't it seem reasonable to you that once a man is saved, he changes his thoughts, he changes the way he lives his life? For to me, it seems ludicrous that God would save us so that we could continue to live the same sinful life that we did before. So it certainly seems reasonable to us, or at least it should, that we have been changed. And it seems reasonable to assume that this, this will change us philosophically as well as positionally. So first tonight, in this analogy of a believer, I, I want to, us to see that a believer should be consecrated. So what manner of persons ought we to be? Well, we should be people who are consecrated unto God. Are we, as we sit here tonight, are we consecrated unto the Lord? But then secondly, in our analogy of a believer, I would like to say this. A believer should be humble. A believer should be humble. We go back to Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, where Paul writes, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Paul says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, not to overestimate our own value and our own worth. Humility is defined as freedom from pride and arrogance, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God. Now, there is a very inherent danger here in being a believer. As believers, we hate sin, and certainly we should hate sin. However, the danger is that if we are not careful, we will begin to hate not only the sin but the sinner as well. This will begin to lead us into the opposite of humility, which is pride. We will begin to, even if only in our own minds, we will begin to exalt ourselves because we do not behave as poorly as others do. This was the downfall of the Pharisee spoken of by Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Verses 10 through 14, where we read, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And this pride is seen in so many believers today, simply because they can follow a set of rules or they can behave by a code of ethics. They become prideful and demeaning to those that do not conform to their code of standards. And this leads to pride. And God warns us about pride. The Bible states some very pertinent things about pride. The Bible states that pride, first of all, is sin. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 4. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. God states that pride is sin. In fact, pride is listed among the things that God hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, Solomon writes, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And look at verse 17, for it begins with a proud look. Pride is the very first thing on the list of of seven things that God hates. So pride is sin, but not only is pride sin, next, pride leads to destruction. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. At the root and at the heart of every war ever fought is pride. At the root and at the heart of every divorce ever ever made is pride. Pride will destroy your home, it will destroy your family, it will destroy lives. But not only does pride lead to destruction, but thirdly, pride causes contention. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 25, we read, He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife, but he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. You can tell I trust the Lord a lot. You see that? He said, he said, a man with a proud heart stirs up strife. At the heart of every, of every troublemaker is pride. Pride is a terrible thing. Pride next brings shame. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2, When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. So we see these things Uh, The Bible pronounces all these things upon pride. A believer should never live his life in pride, but a believer should walk in humility. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul writes, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And you know, those are a lot of old English words that most people don't understand. But allow me to paraphrase that verse for you. It would read something like this. With a yielded and patient spirit, enduring heartache and hardships, maintaining self-control toward each other in love. And that's what Paul admonishes us to do. Yield with a yielded and patient spirit, enduring heartaches and hardships, maintaining self-control toward each other in love. Live your life in humility and allow God to, God to exalt whom he will exalt. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, our Savior states, For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, 
and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. James writes in James chapter 4 and verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. When we were unsaved, we walked in pride and arrogance. But now that we are the children of God, we are to walk in love and humility with all seriousness and with gravity. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. A believer is consecrated. A believer should be humble. But then thirdly tonight, let me finish up by saying this. A believer should be unified. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, we read, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Now, before we were saved, the philosophy was every man for himself, right? Before we were children of God, most of us, we were, we were only concerned about one thing, and that was me. I was only concerned about myself. Am I happy? Do I have all that I want to have? Am I content with, with my life the way it is? Our main interest was for our own happiness and our own comfort, but now that we're saved, things have changed. Now we see a new agenda emerging. By the mercies and grace of God, through salvation in Jesus Christ, we have become consecrated unto God, and we have learned to walk in humility. And now we find ourselves in harmony with other believers, the children of God. And by the way, this is not an accident. It is by the divine will of God. It is according to His purpose. I'll I'll confess to you, before I was saved, I didn't care much for Christians. Maybe that's why God has put me through all the things He has since I've gotten saved. But I wasn't, I, I didn't care much. I didn't care about church. I didn't care about Christians. I didn't care about any of that. But once I got saved, there was only one place I wanted to go. I wanted to go to church. Once I got saved, I loved to read the Bible. I loved to hear preaching. I loved to sing. I loved to do, I loved anything that had to do with the local church. What happened? God happened. God changed me. And he enabled me now to love his word, 
to love his people and to love his family. Matter of fact, he more than enabled me. He gave me a hunger. And I'll tell you what, you go visit any backslidden Christian and they will all tell you the same thing. Yeah, there was a time when I did love the, I loved going to church. I loved reading the Bible. I loved the fellowships. I loved singing. But you know, I, I just, I just fell away from it and, and I lost that zeal. Well, Paul admonishes us to be unified. He says, we are one body in Christ. We are members one of another. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14, we read, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The unity of the faith, a believer, a believer will enjoin himself to the local church. A believer will become a part of the body and will strive to live in harmony with all the body. This attraction to the body, this, this drawing of the Spirit, will cause us to dwell together in unity. This is the nature of the new creation that we have in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That new man that you and I were, were made upon salvation has a nature of unity. It does not have the nature of the old man. It does not have the nature of the flesh. It has the nature of Christ. And you and I are to, are to put down the old man and allow the new man to live. Allow the new creation, the new creature to, to dominate our lives. Not yielding ourselves to the old nature, but rising up and, and embracing the new nature given to us in Christ Jesus. This new creature will never be satisfied until we live in the unity of the faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In Scripture, we are admonished to dwell in unity, to be in one accord. In Acts chapter 2, in verses 46 and 47, we read, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, this type of harmony, this type of unity is impossible when a church is built upon those bearing false professions. For only God, by virtue of his sovereignty, can change the heart of a man to be in agreement with his word 
and with his people. And of course, we know from Scripture that this unity of the brethren is pleasing unto God. For in Psalm 133, in verse 1, we read, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's one of the things I praise the Lord about for our church, is we are people in accord, we are a people in unity. And a, a believer dwells in, in unity. A believer is united with the, with the church. A believer is united with the people of God. Those of you who are parents here tonight, does it grieve you to see your children at odds with one another? It's not pleasant for parents to see their children bickering and fighting, is it? That doesn't bring any joy to parents. Oh, I could tell you some stories, but we don't have time. We don't find any joy in in behavior such as that. Then why would we suppose that God is untouched when we mistreat one another? And by the way, before you offer a word of criticism or an accusation against one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, can I ask you a question? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Who is it? So next time you offer a criticism against your brother or sister in Christ, what office are you assuming? Who are you working for? Or who are you working with? We're to love each other. We're to be in unity. And and let me say, I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? I'm not standing up here saying I've arrived. I'm preaching to myself. Before we hurl an accusation or say a critical thing about one of our brothers or sisters, we better stop and realize that we're doing the same thing Satan does every moment of every day. We are to be in unity. Now, time does not allow me to continue expounding upon these admonitions from God in Romans chapter 12. I I would encourage you to continue the study of God's word yourself and and continue to answer that important question we started with found in 2 Peter chapter 3. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Holy Spirit of God, we we cannot in our human form, in in our human nature, we cannot live what we read tonight. Only by... Your influence, only by your working in our life, can we live our lives the way we ought to live our lives. So, Holy Spirit, we yield ourselves to your your guidance. We ask you to instruct us. We ask you to guide and lead us in life. We ask you to help us understand all these truths so that we might live the empowered life that God has made available to us through his grace and through his mercy. Thank you for this time. We ask that you would bless it. 
We pray that glory would be given to you for all things that will be done. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.